I guess you just keep going until you get it right. I want to welcome you to 50 Tastes of Grey. My name is Matthew Gray, and I'm thrilled to kick off my very first podcast with a very special guest, Michael Benner. Having known Michael for decades, his influence on my life has been profound. While growing up in Los Angeles, I used to listen to Michael's radio shows all the time. He explored human potential, peaceful existence, life, and love, along with a healthy dose of skepticism. Michael set the tone for my life's journey, sparking my interest in becoming a radio personality way back then. That was the 80s. So now, as we navigate this uncertain post-COVID world, I'm going to share my perspectives on the issues Michael brought into focus for me. In this episode, I'm honored to have Michael Benner as my guest. He is my mentor, after all. Because he's been this guiding light and force in my life, I thought this chat would be an amazing place to begin. We're going to be talking about food, psychology, psychedelics, ageless wisdom, and so much more. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Michael Benner on my very first 50 Tastes of Grey. And if you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, check out my website at lovelife.com for my whereabouts. Here goes. Aloha. So, Michael, what have you eaten today that you really enjoyed? <laughs> well, it's uh, early for me in California, so I have uh, a cup of tea, which I'm still working on. My favorite uh, PG Tips, British tea. Oh, good. The real stuff, not that, uh, that herbal stuff. No, no. Uh-huh. This, it's not breakfast tea. It's not quite that strong, but it's a nice, flavorful, good for what ails your tea. Do you sweeten it or cream it? No, just straight up. Straight up, good. And a couple of pieces of uh, toast, small, thin slice. It's called Dave's Killer Bread. Have you ever heard of it? I have. People keep telling me about that. It's expensive. It's like seven bucks a loaf. Oh, wow. It's tasty, especially as toast. And and, a little real butter and a little raspberry seedless jam and uh that's my breakfast that's that's that'll get me into mid-afternoon is that uh, pretty much a standard beginning of the day thing for you yeah sometimes i have eggs i really like eggs uh-huh uh, it's a good protein source and i like them every which way so, how could you not you know <laughs> well it's a great source chicken eggs are a wonderful source of protein you know, recently when we were speaking, you were talking about an old friend, Steve, who is a, a real foodie. And when he comes to town, you guys go out and you enjoy a lot of great restaurants in the town. So do you kind of consider yourself a foodie or someone with a gourmet palate? I would hesitate to say I, I, I'm a gourmet or epicurean, but I do enjoy food. I enjoy eating it. And I do so mindfully whenever I can, you know. Eating is often a social thing, so you have a choice. Are you going to engage with the people at the table and chit-chat, or are you going to allow your attention to rest on the flavor of the food and the texture of the food and where it came from and how it nourishes you? So when I'm alone, or if it's a situation where I can be mindful of my eating, I prefer to do that. But... I also, you know, I'm a bit torn. I also enjoy the the social nature of breaking bread together with people, good wines, and um, 
I don't drink much wine, but when I do, I enjoy it. Pay attention to it. I'm mindful of the way the flavor unfolds on my tongue. It's, it's a quite an experience. I think eating is one of the, the great pleasures of life. Does having social company during a meal, let's say you've gone out to a restaurant, does that keep you from really being able to savor and enjoy? Yeah. 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 You have to go back and forth. Most people are not aware of being aware. And as you know, this is uh, sort of my professional purview. This is what I do for a living, at least for the last 35 years, is personal and spiritual development. Mindfulness, the nature of awareness, which is consciousness, is of grand interest to me. I'm fascinated by it. The bottom line is when you are eating socially and you wish to be mindful about it, attempting to be increasingly aware of being aware or noticing what you notice. How about that? That's mm-hmm. another way to talk about mindfulness. You really have to go back and forth, you know. And, uh, am I paying attention to the conversation or am I paying attention to the food? And sometimes you could delude yourself into thinking, well, I'm doing both at the same time, but you're really not. If you're talking to somebody, you're not tasting the food. You're, you're just eating it. Sometimes we can spend a couple hundred dollars on a meal with friends who are fun to be with and we enjoy ourselves, but we don't really taste the food. Yeah, I remember eating, but I don't remember much about it, the flavor. I didn't wasn't really mindful of the texture. I didn't think about whether it was a balanced meal in terms of proteins and carbs and fats or, you know, where it came from or how it nourishes my body or any of those things. So... I find great satisfaction in slowing all of that down. Right, right. And and, uh, if I'm going to engage with you as I am now, I may sip my tea, but I'm not really present with the tea if I'm engaged with you. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, satisfaction that comes from being increasingly mindful. I've referred to you several times in the past many months when I've been guesting on other people's podcasts, letting them know that. A man named Michael Benner is my mentor. You were one of the very first people I ever listened to doing talk radio and human potential. And I find that you were a big part of my getting going in my life, whether it be radio or chefing or working with the rock bands or whatever. But I always had you in mind, and you really helped me understand a lot about that. Tell us a little bit about how you started on this journey of uh, self-awareness, mindfulness, and the kind of coaching and things that you're doing now? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I did this from a book. It was when I wrote my book a few years ago, Fearless Intelligence, that I sat down and wanted to establish my credibility and not just write a text. I showed my first draft to a friend of mine, and he sent me an email in return that had only two words in it. The email said, who says? And I thought, oh, he's, t- <laughs> he's telling me I have to establish my credibility. Like, who am I? Put yourself in your book. And so I did. And that's when I began to think, yeah, that, when did I get interested in all of this? Yeah. The best I can do, Matthew, is tell you that when I was a young boy, maybe 11 or 12 years old, I saw a hypnotist on television. It was a program in early to mid-1960s, called the Art Linkletter House Party. And he had a hypnotist on. Let me take that back. It probably was the late 50s. Oh, wow. Okay. 
And I was absolutely fascinated by what this stage hypnotist was apparently able to do. And not long after that, I saw a coupon in the back of a Superman comic book for a book on hypnosis, which I promptly clipped the coupon and filled it out and sent in my $2 or whatever it was, and bought a book on hypnosis. And then some years later in college, I began to read about Edgar Casey, for example. Mm -hmm. I read a book on uh, self-hypnosis by, uh, as I recall, his name was Leslie Lacron. This whole idea of altered states beyond just the word hypnosis or self-hypnosis, what are altered states of awareness. And along comes LSD in the late 60s when I was in college. And an introduction to the concept of a mind-expanding drug. Even pot, we were told, was mind-expanding. It created a whole subculture, as we know, that the beatniks became hippies. And uh, in addition to their bohemian interest in poetry and bongo drums and, you know, sort of Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg and these beat poets, this new culture emerged from that that was more psychedelicized. But the toll that those drugs take on you, LSD or psilocybin or mescaline, all of which are naturally occurring in nature, it's, it's, it's pretty rugged. It's not a lifestyle, certainly least not for me. So many of us, many of uh, my peers and I turned to Eastern philosophy, but uh, there was no way I was going to join some ashram or some yoga cult or some mysterious religion. Although my association with Catholicism and Christianity in general was not really addressing my needs and was not answering my questions about the meaning and purpose of life. Why are we here? What are we for? Indeed, who are we? I began to meditate to the best of my ability, self-taught. And then I came across a class in 1974 called Silva Mind Control. Oh, I do remember that name. And that was probably around the time I started listening to you at KLOS. I started on KLOS in 77. Oh, okay. And uh, was there for 10 years. Where were you prior to KLOS in Los Angeles? I worked at a radio station on the Sunset Strip called K-West. Maybe that's where I first plugged in with you. I was a DJ there, and uh, boy, I loved being on the Sunset Strip in the 70s. Yeah. It was quite the scene, and uh, Roxy was up the street, and uh, Whiskey A Go Go was right there. Right club called Filthy McNasties. I always thought that was a great title for a club. Oh, yeah. Filthy McNasties. And, of course, the rainbow up next to the Roxy and the Troubadour. Right. Boy, oh, and, boy. Bring it back memories. Yeah, all those clubs were rock. In fact, I met Willie Nelson in the Troubadour in 1977. Wow. Yeah. He walked up behind me. We were. I was standing in the back of the room. And he came up behind me and stood next to me, this little guy in a cowboy hat. And I didn't know who he was. And I turned and looked. And, oh, my God, it's Willie Nelson. I said, hey, Willie, how are you doing? I met him years later and reminded him of the story. I knew he would not remember. And, of course, he did not. There was no way. But I remembered him. I missed him at the Grammys this week. I'm concerned about his health. He'll be 90 years old in, uh, I think, in April. Wow. And, uh... 
one of the sweetest, most loving and sincere and genuine people I've ever met and such a big star. We met a lot of big stars and celebs and uh, he stands out. He's like, uh, I met Muhammad Ali once. I would say those two guys were just breathtaking in charisma that they emanated in their, their presence. And very, very different people. You know, Muhammad Ali is all full of himself. Right. But that bravado, he's really a sweetheart of a guy. Willie doesn't have any of the bravado. He's your best neighbor. You know? He's your friend down the street. What a good guy. Wow. What a blessing to know these guys. Anyway, that was at the Troubadour back in the day, late 70s. He was touring to support a, uh, a movie that was done around his uh, 4th of July picnics, Willie Nelson's 4th of July picnic, which was a big music festival they had down in, uh, I think, Austin. Uh -huh. That's where he's from, is the Austin area. Uh, he's he's a man who is into a certain amount of mind expansion, but uh, the cannabis style kind. Yeah, he's a total loady. Uh -huh. <laughs> he, no shame whatsoever. I think he knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he's always high when he performs. Mm -hmm. He's always stoned. You, you just know they're always high, but they're not so wasted that they're not lucid, right? Creative and conscious enough to be kind and humble and never rise to anger. Is part of the reason why you went into Eastern philosophy and, and that kind of thing, meditation, because you weren't interested in the mind expansion related to LSD and psilocybin and things like that? Was it connected? Yeah, because you would always crash. You know, you'd always have to come down and then deal with, I don't know if I'd call it a hangover, but... After a psychedelic trip, you're pretty wasted. You're pretty burned out. Mm -hmm. It burns up all the sugars in your brain, I guess. I'm not exactly sure the physiological impact of these psychedelic drugs, but I, I would feel whipped the next day. And so I was looking for something that lasted, something right. real and organic, just like food. You know, we want the real thing. Don't give me something sprayed with pesticides and, and uh, herbicides and all manner of chemicals and GMO foods. And I want real food, the food that my ancestors ate. That's what my body is made out of. That's what I want to feed it. So I thought if there is such a thing as higher consciousness, and there certainly is on a psychedelic experience, then we ought to be able to reach that organically. And these Eastern gurus were saying, yeah, that's exactly what it's about, is it? I think, Matthew, maybe the best way to describe an altered state is an elevated perspective. It's like uh, <laughs> when I was volunteering for the city of Glendale in California at the Red Cross, I took a helicopter ride one day with the local police department, and they had this brand new jet helicopter. It was so cool. And the first thing the pilot did was ask me where I lived so he could fly over my house. And of course, the higher we went in the helicopter, this was, you know, I saw Glendale and Burbank from an entirely different perspective. Right. He flew us past the Hollywood sign, and because there was no game in Dodger Stadium, he swooped down into Dodger Stadium, and then he flew us between skyscrapers in downtown Los Angeles. You could see people walking around in these tall buildings. It was this incredible experience. But 
My point is the higher you go, the broader are your horizons. See farther. Hey, there's my house over there. <laughs> right, right. That's what expanded awareness or higher consciousness does, is it, it allows you to see, to recognize, to understand that which was imperceivable or difficult to comprehend in normal awareness. And then on the other end of things, the more anxious and nervous and stressed we get, the more frenetic our minds and the less we see. It's like we're putting blinders on now or glasses that prevent us from seeing well, Coke bottle glasses or something. And that's where most people live most of their lives is in this, they don't see, we don't see. Even after all these years, it happens to me if I allow myself to get anxious or stressed out or flustered or a problem that I can't manage or, or resolve. I have to take a breath, relax, slow down, not push myself. Then I gain insight and understanding. You're more likely to get those little epiphanies or those revelations, those aha experiences of thoughts arriving full-blown, intuition as thoughts that arrive full-blown. Boing! Just, whoa! I get it. I suddenly see the whole picture. Where did that come from? We can facilitate that process with deep relaxation. It's benefit of quieting the mind and calming or disposition. What do you make of the recent news, I guess in the past decade or so, people talking about microdosing, barely perceptible amounts of psilocybin to help them be more creative and more clear and more aware in their everyday, day-to-day life? Um, is that something that you're familiar with? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, not long ago on my KPFK radio program, I interviewed a, a Dr. Stuart Hameroff, who is a, um, well, he's a, a medical doctor, an anesthesiologist, who became fascinated by anesthesia. And where does consciousness go when someone is anesthetized? It's not really well understood. Some people can be deeply anesthetized in surgery and still feel pain, but not be able to communicate it. It's exceedingly rare, but it happens. Some people have out-of-body experiences on anesthesia, or they can, from a perspective of, of being on the ceiling, they can look down and see their bodies on the operating table during surgery. Some people awaken from anesthesia able to speak languages that they've never been able to speak before. Wow. A very unusual experience, a transcendental experience. Mm -hmm. uh, some people have near-death experiences as part of this whole phenomena. And he is now the chairman of the Department of Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And they have a big conference every year. And I interviewed him about the conference. They synthesize LSD and psilocybin and mescaline. So it's laboratory quality and experiment with the microdosing in a clinical setting, uh -huh. mostly for depression and PTSD. Right, right. And uh, the proof's in the pudding. Women and men definitely benefit from the experience. These chemicals cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. And they seem to open up the filter that the brain appears to be. Consciousness is not an epiphenomena of brain chemistry or a side effect. 
the, the brain does not generate awareness. It is like a receiver of awareness. It appears that all living things, indeed all things, are immersed in an ocean of awareness that comes through the brain, but the brain's job is to filter it and focus it such that a, a mind-expanding drug, like we're talking about these psychedelics, will open up or dilate those filters and you get more awareness to the point that the Beatles wrote a song that's all too much. Right. The love that's streaming all around you and you see the walls are breathing and music pours out of the speaker as colors and people's eyes become kaleidoscopic and we get this synesthesia, this cross-wiring of senses. And it's such a remarkable experience that one has to consider maybe that's not the hallucination. Maybe this is the hallucination. Mm -hmm. And the mind-expanding drugs is a greater reality than we've ever imagined. So yeah. that can do a lot to clear depression. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of the of the microdosing. I'm, I'm not a tripper anymore like I once was where you do get all of these breathing walls and you get these crazy wild dreams and music and creativity and so on. But like I said, the, the stuff that's imperceptible, that's working at the kind of the cellular level is something I definitely believe in. Yeah, yeah, we're at a frontier of that. This is the exciting frontier of that, but to me, the far greater adventure are the inner frontiers, the unlimited and unbounded awareness that awaits discovery within us. Once we close our eyes and turn our attention inward, a process that for most people is terrifying. One of the aspects of personal development that's always intrigued me is how frightening the whole prospect is to most people. So to be able to see themselves, to be able to understand what's going on with them, is that really yeah. the, the scary part? Yeah, there's a aphorism written or a phrase, a saying by um, a philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And he said, the source of all men's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone with his own thoughts and feelings. Many of us from so-called touch deprivation. Right, right. We need that contact. And ironically, as energy beings or spiritual beings, we have that contact, but as physical beings in animal bodies, we are separate. That's the cause, the root cause, I would suggest, of all of our anxiety is this feeling that we're ultimately alone mm -hmm. and separate and, and abandoned by God in this cold, cruel world. But that's the hallucination. That's the illusion. You're not alone. You were never alone. Silly idea that if I just add one L to alone, I get all one. Or the word atonement. Maybe it's at one. Oh, yeah. What you're making me think of now is how do we thread the needle between what you're just speaking about sensory deprivation, feeling alone, the mind expanding when you are deprived of, of any kind of sensory input, and then juxtaposing that against the way that society is right now with fast cut movies and quick cut this and short attention span that and the social media, everything is revved up to such extremes that it seems to fly in the face of anyone who wants to really kind of quiet themselves. Well, you see the effect. People are increasingly unhappy. Suicide is up. Depression on a social 
societal level is at an all-time high. Younger and younger children are suffering from attention deficit and hyperactivity. It's driving us insane. We're in deep trouble. I mean, young people today cannot really, by and large, sit for 90 minutes and watch a film. Right. That's exactly what I was getting at. Now, uh, you would think that with, with all the great minds and thinkers, creative people and healers like you and myself and that kind of thing, that the world is seemingly spinning out of control away from center. It is for most people, but generally what fear is, is not a response to danger or an indication of some threat. It's a feeling that arises in the presence of anything new or unknown, whether it's dangerous or not. Hey, Michael, what are you afraid of? Well, I don't know. Well, that's the point. That's what, <laughs> that's what fear is. Again, my book, Fearless Intelligence, is based on this single concept. That fear is not about danger. It's about anything you don't know or understand that, that is confusing or that you're unaware of. Be alone. Everyone listening to us now knows if they are willing to turn and confront that and stop pushing away from it, stop busying yourself with swipe left, swipe right, Instagram, bam, bam, TikTok, all of these are diversions from reality. And the irony is we think we're making social connections and in fact, we're isolating ourselves even more. Yeah, that was the grand promise that all the social media was going to bring us together, bring us closer to be able to do the high touch stuff. And it's done just the opposite. Exactly. It's done, ex <laughs> it's done exactly the opposite. If we go back to our interest in restaurants, how often now do we see four people at a table for four and every one of them is on their phones? Oh, does that make you crazy? I want to shoot them in the head. <laughs> I know we're peace-loving, but still. No, um, not to kill them. I just want to wrap them. <laughs> shake them is a better way of saying I know. Wake so, up. Wake you know, up. There's a life that you're completely missing. And none of this matters. None of it matters. There's... Nothing you're going to see on TikTok, Instagram, that's going to change your life. And it just multiplies. So they're not savoring their human contact or their relationships. They're not going to savor their meal. They're just going to be stuffing their pie hole with food. And they're going to be swiping at their phone and looking away. And it's just that people aren't into enjoyment. They're not into getting into the other people's hearts. And it's just so odd to me to see that there's no savoring left in life. And beyond that, with the children, your brain is still being, in, in a physiological sense, the brain is still being wired up until 20 or 21 years of age. So if you're eight years old and your parents hand you an iPhone, you're done. Oh, it's a digital babysitter. And a lot of people I know have done just that. And I think that's crazy. They feed their kids McNuggets and apple juice for their meals. And they give them an iPhone or a tablet to go play with to leave mommy and daddy alone. And mommy and daddy aren't even connecting. That's right. That brain can be rewired, but it takes an enormous amount of work if you're 30 or 35 years old and you're just out of your mind with frenzy and you have no connection to anything real. You've never really walked in the forest. You've never sat quietly and watched deer wander into a meadow and graze. And you've never sat at a glacial lake and watched the sunset in the distance. And so... Your mind is narrow. The brain is very plastic. It's very amenable to whatever its needs are. And if the need is swipe left or 
I need more and more and more stimulation. We're turning ourselves into those research monkeys in cages that learn to push the button to get the food pellet. Or the cocaine. Yeah, it's not yeah. the life I want to live. But things are the way they are in the world and in each individual because of the way we think and feel. Reality mirrors us. What happens to us? We're not victims. I'll say it this way. We're not victims of what is happening to us. In fact, consider this. Things do not happen to us. Things happen, and we take them personally in many cases. We take them too personally. It didn't rain on you. It didn't rain on your picnic. It didn't wreck your golf game. God is not to blame. No one is to blame. It just rained. That's all. <laughs> right. That's a very cosmic way to look at it, but Let's say you were in charge of a certain sector of government or the way the world is working right now. How do you get people to stop shooting others at the very least? You, you, you cannot do it by legislation. You cannot do it by threats. You can only do it by education, socialization, enculturation. People need better parenting skills. We need to completely transform the schools. Self-awareness, not concentration so much as self-awareness, which is a relaxation skill. Actually, concentration is a relaxation skill. And when the teacher or the parent yells at you and says, try harder, concentrate, we tighten and think that's an effort which scatters our attention. Trying to concentrate is a contradiction in terms. You don't try to concentrate to raise your awareness. You relax and let go of the trying. You let go of everything and awareness rises and then you're more able to focus this is the basis of sports psychology mm -hmm. it's, this, it's like there's a a peak of the bell-shaped curve a little bit of stress is good it's called eustress eu stress mm -hmm. it's it's good it prepares you it psychs you up it's oh boy I'm, i can't wait to do it that's that's good stress but then you get to the top of the bell curve and now if you stress yourself further it becomes distress and you go down the other side and your performance your insight your understanding and your performance are degraded so we have to learn to find that balance of of peak awareness and teach that in schools and teach that to children and all kinds of problems will go away this is as important as the reading writing and the arithmetic matthew i am optimistic i think in time the pendulum will swing as it always does and the adversity of these dark ages that we're in right now with its divisiveness and its cruelty and indecency that's really what i see it as cruelty and indecency i love that outlook i totally love that outlook but you know when you talk about the pendulum swinging and we're talking about earth time we could talk about millions of years before something like that happens i can remember some 35 years ago you and i and steve snyder were sitting around a bunch of microphones in his studio in glendale california talking about how messed up the educational system is and what's wrong with it and here we are 35 years later and things are worse now than they were then so this pendulum thing is very very slow what about our time our world in our lifetime 
Let me say, first of all, a lot of that is by design. There are forces. There's a mindset. It could be called conservative, more a reactionary mindset, that it's a good idea to underfund education, to keep people stupid and unaware, to reinforce their tendency to think in binary terms, all or nothing. Any difference is an opposite. This binary thinking, we could do a whole show just on what a pox on humanity binary thinking is. Right. And the more stressed and anxious we get, the worse binary thinking becomes. I remember spy versus spy, where the opposites are more alike than not. They may be opposite, but they're very similar in, in many ways. The extreme left and the extreme right in this country has a lot in common. They can both be opposite and similar. To your answer, what about now? What do we do now? I, I think patience. It's going to take, if not hundreds of years, certainly decades. We won't see it in our lifetime. And I devoted myself to this with my radio talk shows 40, 45 years ago. I thought just talking about current events, news, politics, is not going to change anything. The world is the way it is because of the way people think. So we have to change the way people think. What affects our thoughts and feelings? What stands behind thought and feeling? Indeed, what stands behind intention and its awareness? Then I see this concept, self-awareness, awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, Notice what you notice. Be more and more aware until you become awareness itself. I am that. Sanskrit, tisvat asi. I am that. I am this ocean of awareness. So we're in a world where most people are not aware of being aware. They are victims of their feelings. You made me feel this way. Right. The idea that a feeling is a response is strange and new and scary or... We're victims of our thinking. Why did you think that way? Why did you choose this thought to embrace and reject those thoughts? Well, I don't know. Well, of course you don't. Because you're not paying attention to your thoughts because nobody taught you to watch your thoughts. Watch my thoughts. Dude, how do I watch my thoughts? That's what meditation is or contemplation. It's a technique that's only 2,500 years old and even then some say older still, called Vipassana, which is watching your body breathe itself. And when you sit quietly with your eyes closed and effortlessly, passively, observe the body breathing from a fixed spot on the end of your nose, for, for example, the bottom of your nose, or it could be your belly or anywhere that you want to place your attention. And you identify as the one who watches rather than the breather and recognize that I could take a deliberate breath anytime I want, and deep breath, or I could pant, or I could hold my breath. But no, right now, I'm we call it involuntary breathing. I'm just allowing my body to breathe and I'm watching it. I identify as the watcher. That skill within a matter of weeks can be transferred to watching intrusive thoughts. The, the, the thoughts that are not deliberate and task-oriented, that monkey mind that goes crazy when we stop applying our mentality. You spoke a little bit earlier about the uh, binary system and the possibility that there are powers greater than us who are keeping us down, keeping us from knowing, keeping us from learning. Do you believe that in any way possible that people are speaking about a matrix and the possibility that we are living within some sort of a matrix that's playing out. Is there any part of that that you could buy? Oh yeah, I think uh, that allegory works for me. 
outside agent or higher power. We are the purveyors of the matrix by our own, I'll say, our own unwillingness to be awake. So that's within ourselves, but I'm talking on the grander scale. Is it possible that we're not who we think we are? We are not who we think we are. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fact. We are not the, the very word personality is rooted in persona. The meaning of persona is mask. We clearly, with just a little bit of reflection, are, for the most part, a character that we've developed, mostly for the purpose of pleasing other people and being accepted by other people to mitigate our terror of being alone. If I talk to you, my friend Matthew, Zoom call or wherever, and then I call my mother, there's a different Michael that's going to be on the phone with my mom. And then I go in the other room and I talk to my wife and I'm still slightly a different person. Deep under those roles is a reality of self that most people have never even begun to imagine. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I address this with my students and private clients is you must know you're not what other people think of you. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. Yeah, trying to please other people and get a sense of self-confidence, self-respect and self-image and self-trust and self-love from others. Wait a minute, every one of those hyphenated words had self at the beginning. Like, the street gangs are all jacked out of shape by being disrespected. You know, he dissed me. Well, if you had self-respect, who could take that away from you? You would just laugh at somebody who tried to disrespect you because you know better. The more you know yourself, the less it matters what other people think. That's to a matter of degree. You know, those studies that uh, where they'll ask people their perception of themselves and what they believe other people's perceptions of them are. And those are always interesting to see. Well, that's Dunning-Kruger effect. There's a flip side to that called Dunning-Kruger where people overestimate their capacities and abilities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's called the American Idol effect, and you'll see these young people come to audition convinced that they're the next Beyonce or Stevie Wonder, and they're just horrible. That's why scientists don't don't allow for uh, self-examination or self-reporting to work in a scientific study. Yeah, or a surgeon would never operate on his member of his family mm-hmm. or her family. But to develop this idea from just a minute ago, you are not what others think of you, or you're also, I would suggest, not what you think of yourself. are what you care about. You are what you love. You are who you love, but moreover, you are that you are loving. Whoever said we need a reason to be happy? Children do not need a reason to be happy. Unless they're in a dysfunctional household, uh, they're happy for no reason. That's called joy. It's our natural state of being is joy, is love. I think it's Rumi that is often quoted as saying, ours is not to seek and find love, but to let go of everything that is not love and peace. It's it's always in here perpetually. You don't attain love. You don't attain peace of mind. You don't attain confidence. You don't have to earn or merit a living. Just let go of all the stuff on the outside that you've used to protect yourself and risk plumbing the depths of your character. What you're going to find is peaceful, loving, and beautiful. I was going to ask you, when you're talking about all of these things, and and especially children right now, where do you stand on competition? 
Should there be a winner and a loser, or does everyone deserve a participation trophy? Well, that's a great question, Matthew. I'm, I'm loving this interview. You ask such good questions. I think it's a, a middle way. It's a balance. I think competition is a good thing in perspective. But, you know, good sportsmanship is a great example of a format to take a look at this, where you fight hard to win the game, you build the team, you experience teamwork, esprit de corps, you work together like a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. The object is to to win the game, if you will, to defeat the other side. But when the game's over, you shake hands, you hug the opponent, you walk off the field with your arms around each other. Do winners need to console the losers and do losers need to congratulate the winners? Uh, to some degree, but if we're mentally healthy and well-balanced, we shouldn't really need uh, the congratulations or the consolation. I think I was just trying to strike that politically incorrect balance of everyone deserves a participation trophy and that it doesn't matter if you win, it doesn't matter if you lose. That's just one scenario that interests me. And then I want to talk about gender identity and gender politics, if you will. I'll go wherever you want to go with this. Uh, this idea of the middle way of integration or balance is applicable in many, many areas. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of gender is an either-or. That's one of the primary uh, reasons that we think in binary ways. We also have two brains. We have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. If you could look at a physical brain, you'd see even physically they're very different. Mm -hmm. And the operations that they perform are very different. Left brain, right brain, that, that too is another whole show. It's kind so, of a male-female thing, isn't it, when they break down the brain into hemispheres? Yeah, that's sort of what I'm saying. The yin and yang uh -huh. is light and shadow, male and female. It's also electromagnetic polarity. Remember, Einstein proved everything is energy. Mass or physical dense is just energy at a very slow vibration or frequency. And its mass is a way of discussing its energy content. Ultimately, everything is, is energy. Well, energy vibrates. It has frequency and it has amplitude. Frequency is how fast does it vibrate? Think of the strings in a piano. Mm -hmm. That's where pitch comes from, how fast does it vibrate? And then amplitude is uh, how the volume or the gain, how loud is the sound? How high or how low does this vibration go? Well, anything that vibrates, like a piano string or stretching a rubber band and plucking it, it has a yin and a yang. It has a peak and a trough, a crest and a trough. And so, too, everything there is a season, turn, 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 a time for this, a time for that. There are seasons and cycles in all things. And this, again, is part of the ageless wisdom. That's what my... My podcast is called uh, The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. This is not new age. It's timeless. It's ageless. Oh, yeah. Ancient wisdom, this idea of all things cycle. And we make the error of putting time on a number line and believe that we sit at zero and the past is all these negative numbers off to the left and the future is all these positive numbers running off to the right. Hey, clocks are round for a reason. It goes round and round. The planet goes around. The moon goes around the Earth. The moon and the Earth go around the sun. The galaxy itself is spinning around. All energy moves in spirals. The, 
the wind under the wings of a bird or an airplane is a spiral. Weather patterns are spiralic. Everything moves in cycles. And to begin to see that, and the sacred geometry that comes out of that, quite beautiful and, and even <clears throat> spiritual in that you see order in things, in integrity in the universe. It's not chaotic, and it's not entropy winding down and everything petering out. Consciousness brings order out of chaos. So that balances the idea of entropy and chaos and fatalism that comes from that kind of thinking. It's, well, okay, dude, but what are you going to do with that? What are you right. going to build out of that? What do you want to the yin and the yang, the male and the female, the light and the shadow, the, the peak and the trough of everything that vibrates because it's all energy. This is the, the root of binary thinking, of bifurcation, of the false dichotomy, of the, the this or that of things, the all or nothing of things. But there is a middle. There is the 80-20 and the 60-40 and in the 50-50, if we could but open that up, requires stress management. You've right. got to confront your fears that there's you and then everything else that's against you. It's right. just, life is such a self-fulfilling prophecy. We reap what we sow. If that's the way you think, then that's the reality you end up creating. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with that. What is your favorite time of the year? Your favorite season? Spring and fall. Okay. <laughs> There's a middle again, right? Yep. I live in the low desert of Southern California now near Palm Springs in uh, early February. It'll be 75 degrees here today. Beautiful. Uh, that's why we're here. Of course, it's uh, hot as Hades in the summer. I've seen uh, 120, 122. Uh, people use potholders to open the car door. Wow. Most of the homes out here are built for it. We have heavy insulation, double-pane windows. Everything's air-conditioned. Yeah, of course, but everything is well-designed. And we do have a lot of uh, solar and a lot of uh, wind-generated power. Bend to Palm Springs, you see all the windmills on your way into town. So a lot of our power is uh, eco-friendly and sustainable and low-carbon footprint and all of that. I love the desert, but... Uh, having grown up in Michigan and lived in Hawaii for a while and uh, known all kinds of climbs, uh, winter is a little too severe and summer can be too hot and humid. So I love spring and fall. The fall colors back east. And I, I, I guess I would have to say spring really even more than fall because that's the birthing, that's the flowers, that's the newborn animals, and nature bursting at the seams, and the newness and the freshness of it all. Yeah. Now that I think of it, I'll settle on spring. Okay. Okay. That sounds fair. <laughs> <laughs> because you said that things are fluid and the binary thinking. We talked a little bit about the winning and losing. But what about a person who was born a male and lived uh, much of his life as a male, then competing as a woman? against women in any sort of a sports setting or Olympic setting, and vice versa. These are really complicated issues. I'm going to speak to you very personally here. I've always had gay friends and was okay with that because I saw that it was about love, not sex. I'm not really interested in what people do behind closed doors to express that love. I'm interested in the love, tenderness, treating people with kindness, and reconnecting in a world 
or as we've said today, there, there's so much loneliness and mm-hmm. the, the fear that comes out of separation anxiety. So if people can find each other soul to soul, then the body you're born into doesn't really matter that much to me. We have this gay liberation movement that finally results in the Supreme Court removing restrictions on gay marriage. So it's legalized or gay relationships are decriminalized. Right. Another way of saying it. But now we have uh, this idea of transgender and I'm born in the wrong body and animus, the male and female aspects of all beings. And I believe that each and every one of us, regardless of the bodies that we inherit, are spiritual beings that contain both aspects, a male and a female. The male being the, well, both are strong in different ways. Women in endurance. If you ever if you ever watch Naked and Afraid, it's usually the guy that taps out first. <laughs> Big, tough Marine goes home on the second day and abandons this frail woman who stays for all 21 days on her own and does just fine. So women have their own strengths, but we think of men as being big and strong and powerful and buff. And in nature, the male of the species is colorful and goes out and kills and brings, in most cases, some animals are different, but uh, the male brings home the bacon. And the female is camouflaged and usually a little smaller in size. And she is the nest builder and, the, and keeps the home. She gives birth, she nurtures the children. So it's understandable that ancient humans would follow that as hunters and gatherers. And when we became civilized, that was carried over. So in the larger context, there had to be a women's liberation movement that said, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a man. I want the freedom to be whoever I am. And that's unfolding. That's in keeping with everything that we've talked about today. Well, now that's to the point that I'm born into a woman's body, but I feel like a man. I'd like to dress like a man. Actually, I always have dressed like a man, and I never really played with dolls, you know. And I had a motorcycle, so I want to have surgery and have my breasts removed. I, I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any issue with this. I have some close friends who are trans. My only concern is when it comes to children, at what age is the age of consent? To a lesser degree, this whole sports issue. And I'm not sure that it matters so much. It is sports after all. But, you know, for a guy to decide that and in order to win a gold medal, I have to pretend I'm a woman. Or maybe I even convince myself I really am a woman. But you've still got this testosterone in this male body. That hardly seems fair. So I... Yeah, I do have issues with that as progressing as I am. And then the idea of children having surgery at a young age, even 18, I think, is way too young to be making this kind of decision. I didn't begin to understand myself till I was 30 or 35 years old. And I looked back at my, my 20s and my teenage years where I thought I was so smart. And I was such a moron. I did such stupid things. It's a wonder I survived. It really is. It's incredible that so many progressive, liberal-thinking people have now taken on this kind of woke personality or style. And it gives us a bad name, don't you think? 
Yeah, I think it's a lot of peer pressure to get binary thinking, you know, because the alternative to being woke is to be some fascist, some Nazi, some, you know, aligned with the Klan and the Proud Boys and uh, wanting to overthrow democracy and install a dictatorship run by a TV talk show. So if you only have two choices, but we don't have just two choices. There's last time I the last time I opened the box of crayons, there were a lot of choices. Oh yeah. And those colors don't compete. They don't reject each other. I don't want to live in a black and white world. I've seen a rainbow. The great saying in Hawaiian culture, the Polynesian culture, all from the same rainbow. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, all from the same rainbow. But to them, everything is sacred, not just the people and the animals and the forests. The mountain is sacred, the volcano is sacred, the ocean and the ocean floor is sacred. The sharks are my ancestors. And Big fish eat little fish, bigger fish eat that fish. It's just the, the land is alive, the aina, they call it. It's a living, breathing thing. Uh, they, they say the land, the aina gives us our children, obviously an awareness that the bodies that our spirit inherits are made of the clay of this earth. We are indeed stardust. This body was a star at one point that exploded. Now those clays and sand, minerals and elements are in my body. I do my vitamins, I take my minerals, magnesium <laughs> and potassium and zinc <laughs> and selenium. You know, my body is on this earth. And uh, here this uh, beautiful pre-industrialized culture, this Polynesian culture is aware of all of that. Very mystical culture. I learned more about love in my five years in Hawaii than I ever knew before. Right, you were living over on Maui, and I was yeah. on Oahu. You never had children, did you? There are no little baby Benners running around out there, are there? No, not to my knowledge. No, I, without dwelling on it, I can say simply it was a deliberate decision uh -huh. because I never had good parenting modeled for me. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, uh, divorce, a lot of alcohol abuse, a lot of... Uh, physical abuse and emotional abuse. So I thought, well, I have no idea how to be a parent. Time to cut off that bloodline, basically, is what you were thinking. I didn't think of it in quite that way, but yeah. Let's, uh -huh. uh, well, my brother has children. He's got a beautiful family and grandchildren. My sister has children. Married a man who had brought children into the marriage and then <laughs> had a child of her own. Uh, so my mother had plenty of grandchildren. I, did. I was not married till I was 47 years old. Right, right. You know, I was a philander. I was a single rock and roll DJ with lots of girlfriends, and I loved, I loved, loved all these women. And, you know, I, you know, I, I wasn't. It was serial monogamy. I wouldn't say go baby go now in 2023, but if we went back 40 years, I'd say way to go, baby. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that I dislike children. I don't think I have the patience. Um, I always loved my career, and my wife has learned, uh, my wife has taught me to integrate a relationship with her and our sense of family. She has daughters by a previous marriage. She has grandchildren, so there is that side of, uh, if not for her, I would just be totally consumed by media, by uh, uh, radio, Zoom classes, private counseling, 
writing books. That's what I love to do is uh, meditate and then talk about and teach what I've learned about enhancing self-awareness. Tell everyone a little bit about your contact information and the books that you've written and, of course, your current podcast and all that because I know people are going to want to get a hold of Michael Benner. Thank you. The first book and the only one published to date came out just a couple of years ago called Fearless Intelligence. The subtitle is The Extraordinary Wisdom of Awareness. And it's based on a revelation that I had 35 years ago, sitting in meditation. I heard a very clear voice. This voice said, Michael, best parts of you are hidden where you're most afraid to look. And it hit me so strongly that I thought, I better write this down. But I didn't want to leave the meditation. It was so exquisite and sweet, fulfilling. So I just repeated it to myself a couple of times. The best parts of you were hidden where you're most afraid to look. God, that's where I need to go to explore my fear. Uh, the road less traveled, as Robert Frost, Frost would say. I need to, to go where no one has gone before to explore myself and find goodness, truth, and beauty by moving into the shadow. I later realized that many others have said this. Uh, the treasure is hidden in the cave you least wish to enter. So an understanding that fear is not about danger. It's just what you don't understand. The brain alerting you to the fact you're confused or lacking insight. And so the way to get it is to confront your fear, to face it and embrace it and move directly into it. And then it vaporizes because it only represents what you don't know. So this book tells stories about my life, parts of it read like a textbook, and then there are also exercises. It's only 160 pages available everywhere, Fearless Intelligence. I do a free Zoom class every Sunday called Wisdom of the Soul. And then I post that class, the video to YouTube as Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and I uh, podcast that as well. I edit the meditation and the Q&A section. I take those out for the podcast. So it's just the instruction, usually about 30, 35 minutes, and uh, podcast that, again, as Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. That's available wherever people get their podcasts, all players and that. And uh, I, I still do private counseling, though I'm pretty much retired. Two, three times a week, I'll have a private client by phone or Zoom. And uh, I do a free intake session for everybody so they know what they're getting before they sign up. Mm -hmm. MichaelBenner.com is, I've got a half a dozen websites, but that's the main one and leads to all the others. Uh, you can sign up for the free Zoom class, get the newsletter there. You can uh, access my online calendar and schedule a free personal private intro on that site, michaelbenner.com. You are the type A, right? You love to work. You love to help. You love to just do your thing. I guess. I don't, I'm not sure what type A means anymore. I remember that from years and years ago. I'm not the alpha dog so much. In many, <laughs> many ways, I'm meek and mild. But uh, how do you unwind and relax and have fun? Like, like, what's yeah. a good old day? Just 
How do you shoot the shit when it's not about heart and soul and, and meditation? And like, you, do, you, do you put your feet up and have a couple beers? Do you hang out with the guys or with the girls? Or what is just, you know, something that about you that, that people might not know? Boy, what a great question. I mean, I have hobbies. I play guitar all of my life. I recently bought a tone drum. Like what a, is that? Well, it's like a handpan. It's like a steel drum. And uh, they're made in Russia. It's a big, weighs about 25 pounds. It's a circular, 30 inches across, and it's got cutouts. When you hit it with your thumb or your finger, it generates a tone. <laughs> so like a harmonica, you choose a scale, play little rhythms and melodies, and then I like that. That's very meditative and very calming. I love photography. And I like messing around with uh, Photoshop and Luminar and different kinds of uh, photo editing. I do a lot of audio editing, which I love. I do a little video editing. So what do you think about all the AI that's starting to really roll out right now? AI. <laughs> I just did a little commentary in my Zoom class on AI. I have some real, real concerns about AI. I think it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's already here. Microsoft is putting it into its word processing program, OpenAI or ChatGBT or whatever they choose to call it. The problem is, uh, Matthew, it pulls on the internet, half of which is wrong. So I'm concerned about what I'm calling dark AI. We already have, in the last seven years, this assault on media, so-called fake news, which is promoted by those who are faking the news themselves. This is very offensive to me as a journalist, that some would spend their lives devoted to a career, get a four-year college degree, uh, work with thousands of other people, thousands of media outlets, and we're all a bunch of liberals who have a conspiracy to uh, dominate the world with our woke agenda. It's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. The media is supposed to be diverse and antagonistic, and the consumer is supposed to expose himself or herself to balanced, honest, and sincere reporting from a variety of sources. I used to read a magazine called World News Roundup, and it would have excerpts from newspapers and magazines all around the world. And I would use shortwave radio to listen to from all over the world and listen to their news. It's by comparing and contrasting a variety of sources that we become well-informed, not from relying on one objective source or another, much less looking for a news outlet that supports my biases and my prejudices and believing it's true because it feels like it ought to be. That's the only good news. I remember back in the day, Michael Benner used to speak about Mother Jones and Path of Least Resistance. Those are some of my earliest memories of, of what you spoke about. Well, I taught journalism for a while at a Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California. I really enjoyed teaching journalism, too. It's a noble profession. Many think of it as a trade. I mean, it, oh, AI, artificial AI is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Dark AI is what I was broaching this concern that I have with fake news, deep fake videos. I mean, 20 years ago, we were worried about Photoshop. Right. Now it's progressed to the point that here's a video. I've seen videos of famous people saying the silliest, stupidest things, and they're all deliberately faked. That can be used maliciously. And 
so too AI can be used maliciously to make it increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to know what is true. That's right. And we're doomed if we don't know what's true. If we can't figure out what's true and what's not true, we're deliberately underfunding education and un undermining the media and attacking the credibility and the integrity of police and Department of Justice and FBI. I mean, who is it that is undercutting our faith in these institutions but the fascists that really would like to align with Putin, the fascist uh, Kremlin? Organized crime is what it is. There's no distinction between Putin's government and Russian organized crime. And increasingly, I'm concerned that the oligarchs on Wall Street are becoming organized crime. They own the government. Rich people don't pay taxes anymore. How is it that Amazon or Jeff Bezos could make billions of dollars or Elon Musk or any of these thousands of billionaires that pay no tax, that an office worker on minimum wage pays more tax than a billionaire? And then the government says, well, we, you know, especially the, the right wing, we have to we have to stop Meals on Wheels for the old people. We have to stop funding lunch programs in schools for hungry children. No housing, no, no money for urban development, for education, for uh, the social net. We're going we're gonna to privatize the post office. We're going to uh, sell off uh, Social Security and privatize Social Security and Medicare. And no more national. This is a deliberate effort to uh, privatize the whole government. That's mm -hmm. what what fascism is. Fascism is a form of government. It's a movement to create an autocratic, tyrannical dictatorship, an oligarchy, a, a kleptocracy of thieves and billionaires. So many of our social problems boil down to a big monopoly game. Anybody that's played monopoly knows who wins, the one that ends up with all the money. Why is it so hard for us to see that the billionaires have plundered our economy and continue to plunder it. And the irony is those who, the working class, the low information voters out in the heartland, many of whom are most affected, though there's many inner city people that are affected by this wage disparity. But those in the heartland keep voting for the very billionaires that are responsible for plundering the economy while blaming other poor people for their problems people of color or immigrants or refugees, the criminal refugees are the problem. I don't, <laughs> it's obviously a scam. It's a diversion of the fact that once you get a million dollars, Matthew, it's very easy to get a second million, a third million. You start leveraging and the tax laws are written in such a way that this is not income so they don't pay taxes and then they use that money to make money and they don't work the people that work the hardest make the least amount of money that's not right no and they pay the taxes and those that do the least amount of work have the most money the most property and pay no tax i looked up on the internet the other day my health company my health care system and because I, my Medicare sort of collapsed because the union program I was on for Part D for drugs went bankrupt. The SAG-AFTRA, this is Screen Actors Guild and Television Radio Artists Union, their health care went bankrupt. 
<clears throat> so I'm suddenly without Part D, so I had to go with the Medicare Advantage program, which is private health insurance paid for out of Medicare funds. I had some pretty big co-pays, especially with medicines. Right, right. Enormous co-pays. And I thought, what the hell? And so I, I looked up this huge, I'm not going to name it here, but this huge healthcare, national healthcare. And I found out with a quick Google search that the top six executives, all, every one of these C-suite executives, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all six of them were making $25 million a year. That's $100,000 a day. Right. Six people, $100,000 a day, but I have a $500 copay on this Hartman, and people are dying that they can't afford their insulin. That's right. $5. I used to get insulin at Walmart for 17 bucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, a vial of insulin. And now it's $300. An EpiPen is $800. It's got $5 of medicine in it. It's adrenaline. Right. They make it in huge tanks. <laughs> it's cheap as hell. How do I get away with charging $800 for $5 of medicine? And you call that free enterprise capitalism? But here's the problem. Republicans certainly aren't going to blow the whistle on this, but Democrats won't either. Right. So Fox is not going to tell you, but neither is MSNBC or CNN. They're not going to tell you because who's advertising? Big corporation. So this is the economic side of what we're talking about today. And this is behind this corporatization of America. We're becoming a corporatocracy, perhaps. You know, I, I sense that kind of stuff was going on when I was writing restaurant reviews for the Honolulu Advertiser. And I'd write pure critique from my heart, honest. And when I'd go out to my car at the end of the day, I'd, I'd have to dodge people in the advertising department who were trying to run me down because I was talking about restaurants that they were trying to get ads from. And sometimes those two things kind of went head to head. So that stuff happens even within our small organizations, never mind the huge healthcare or SAG-AFTRA. That's true. To be aware of that, you got to fight the good fight. You can't cave to that and face yourself in the mirror when you get up in the morning. you got to fight the good fight and yet not be uh, crazy about it. You've got to always find the balance, even in our radicalness. You know, there, few things are as spiritual as a longing for justice. Mm -hmm. And in the Bible, this is called righteousness. And in Eastern philosophy, it's called right thinking. The longing for justice is love, right? Wanting things to be fair. So I'm concerned about rogue police, black or white, shooting unarmed people of color. Now I'm going to be told that I'm anti-cop and I hate all cops. Right. I trained the police. I did three years at the police academy in, in uh, Orange, uh, Orange County, in Anaheim, the Sheriff's Academy. I trained police in self-awareness. I have great friends who are police. I'm not anti-cop. I'm anti-road cop. They need better training. They need to be as concerned about protecting and defending people in the community as they are about their own lives. The very truth that nobody tells you is that more police commit suicide that are killed doing their job. Roughly 50 cops a year are killed in America by bad guys. 75 to 100 cops a year 
take the wrong lives. Well, that is an interesting step that doesn't surprise me one bit. Never discussed. Yeah. It's a dirty little secret. Mm -hmm. and, and because they're drug tested, they can't smoke weed, so they have their own bars. There are cop bars, bars that cater to no one but police. Right. And alcoholism is rampant. See, the, the worst drug addiction is cops go into a jail and ask them, what's this guy in for? What's he in for? Oh, he's a rapist. He's a murderer. He's a drug dealer. He's a check forger. Uh, he's in here for insurance fraud. Wait a minute, you put the guy with the insurance fraud, the check forger, and with the rapist and the murderer? Oh, yeah, we're a little crowded. We'll throw them all in the same room. But what they have in common is they're all alcoholics. Mm -hmm. It's a scourge. So we're all upset about the opioid epidemic, and we should be concerned about fentanyl, and we should be. The right gets all upset when they hear about free needle programs. Mm -hmm. But if it saves lives, there are models of this being well done in Europe and Scandinavia, proper ways, much more refined ways of handling these problems that we could emulate, but we don't. Instead, we have, what a dirty mark, America imprisons a higher percentage of its people than any other nation in the world. Right. 200 nations on this earth planet and America, 5% of the world, America, the USA, imprisons more of its people. Why? What's what's wrong here? We have so much violent crime and more guns than almost any other nation in the world. We have more guns than people. Right, that's true. And yet two-thirds of Americans are unarmed. Most of the guns are owned by 3% of America. Wow. The, the, the gun freaks that have 20, 30, 40 guns and caches of weapons. Try to tell a gun freak that he's terrified, that he's frightened. They will freak out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gun freaks hate being told they're afraid, but only if they deal with their fears. You will back to this. Only then will they say, well, I don't need this gun. In fact, this gun that I'm hoarding or harboring to protect my family is a greater danger to my family than any intruder or bad guy this gun is six times more likely to kill me or a member of my family than a bad guy yep you're not going to hear that in the news either right no there's no money in that right so michael do you uh have any predictions for this the rest of this year that we're we're taping in 23 right now are you a sports fan no Okay, so do you have any uh, any predictions from here on forward for this year that you that you think are going to make the headlines? Something that will be written about or spoken about? The U the American war machine always needs a new war, and I'm very concerned beyond my concern about our role in Ukraine. Concerned about Taiwan engaging with China. I think this silly balloon. I'm just stunned that the news media so obtuse as to believe that 19th century technology around the world in 80 days, a hot air balloon right out of Wizard of Oz is the way the Chinese gather intelligence. They've got 150 satellites in Earth orbit that can recognize the states or read a license plate. Why do they need a hot air balloon? It's a trial balloon. It's bait, and we took the bait. Like a big fat catfish, we swallowed it down and now created a pretense for the Chinese to confront American intelligence, which is flying all over China all the time, gathering intelligence in defense of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Biden has vowed to protect with troops Taiwan, and China wants it, and they're playing a long game. 
And I'm concerned since America's never found a war they didn't love. And the profit scheme of war is not apparent to most people. I'm concerned that we're going to get into a hot fighting war with China and people will die, lots of them. Families will suffer and that violence will continue to be promoted. And there's just no excuse for it in the 21st century. So that that concerns me. What about on a good note? What positive changes will take place, do you think, this year? What great things might happen? In a year, I I can't think of anything in a year. I'm oriented towards the long term. That's my lifetime. Because I do believe that adversity promotes growth, that uh, a lot of people don't change until they really bottom out and they get frustrated. Uh, Imagine conservatives in the heartland of America figuring out refugees are not the problem. They're not the enemy. That uh, the wage disparity, the death of the family farm is being caused by these billionaires plundering the economy. The Democratic Party could change as well. The Republican Party, that white supremacist Republican Party cannot stand. So it's got to change. I also hope that people will stop viewing all of our problems in terms of politics and recognize that ultimately things are the way they are because of the way people think and feel. But let's change the way people think and feel. We need to teach parenting. We need to fund education. We need to house the homeless. We need to feed the hungry. This is much more important than fighting a war with China over Taiwan. Most people can't even spell the word Taiwan. Right. They couldn't find Ukraine on the map. Most Americans can't find Kansas on the map. <laughs> 40% of Americans believe the Earth, uh, uh, the sun revolves around the Earth. I almost got confused myself. For this. I had an argument with a guy the other day who thought the Earth was flat. Oh, my. He has a college degree. And I said, I gave him like a, a dozen reasons that could not be true. Like, how do you explain day and night? Uh, where, how do you explain volcanoes? Uh, how do you explain the effect of water going down the drain in one direction in the northern hemisphere and the opposite direction in the southern hemisphere? And I went on and on and on, and it just didn't persuade him at all because he didn't care about logic or reason. He had his degree. He was done thinking. It was yep. emotional for him. Right, right, right. He was a victim of a life being done to him, and he didn't want to know that he had a responsibility to be intelligent. That freaks me out. (laughs) It really does. But I think all the adversity and all the suffering that we're going through as a result of the 21st century dystopian reality will at the same time give birth to a a counter-movement of people that want to be more conscious and more aware, who are kind and loving, passionate and empathetic and forgiving, tolerant and patient and of good humor. And I, I think simultaneously, it will always be the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah, I think uh, that's very well put. Hey, by the way, I want to let you know I love your psychedelic screensaver on the monitor behind you in uh, in your background. It's uh, perfect. That that's, that's my wife's computer. That's my wife's computer, and uh, yeah, I like that screensaver too. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining me. We have to pull together a little bit more often than every you know twenty or thirty years to do a radio show together. But this has been a great blast for me, and I hope you had a nice time. I did, and let me say that uh, you doing this podcast is a great idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't want to confuse people with where I was really going. <laughs> you know, 50 Tastes of Grey with Matthew Grey is a great idea. You are not only a friend of mine for several decades, but you do a great job. These are good questions. I've been on a lot of podcasts and your whole demeanor and I'm not just blowing smoke. This could be a very, very exciting project for you. And if I can help you in any way at all, uh, please let me know because I would uh, love to support you and and I know you can grow your audience and people will benefit from listening to you. So thank you. Well, it's been a blast, buddy. And I will be in touch with you and we will stay connected and help promote each other. Good. Thank you. All right. Take care. My best to your beautiful bride. Thank you. I'll tell her you said that. Fantastic. Take care.